Uh, we are so thankful as a church for our Collade Choir, first through fifth grade choirs. Let's thank the leaders for so beautifully leading to hear those first graders and second graders and third graders and fourth graders and fifth graders not only singing a, a current song that expresses the desire of the Spirit of God to lead them, but to also to hear with the, with the same gusto and the, and the, and the same uh, love to be able to, to hear them sing a, a wonderful hymn of the faith that has led and guided our church and the church as a whole for, for decades and years. It's just a beautiful, beautiful reflection of the body of Christ here at Dawson to have our sanctuary choir singing with our chapel choir and to see the love of worship, worship through song and prayer exemplified is, is a beautiful, beautiful portrait. If you have a copy of God's Word, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 5, specifically verses 17 through 20 this morning as we continue in a series in the Sermon on the Mount. I was having lunch with a friend of mine from college, and our paths had, had gone in separate directions for years, and so we were sort of just being reacquainted with one another, reunited. He's passing through town, and so we had what you could imagine that conversation would be like. We, we reminisced over uh, experiences that we had in college. We, we talked about kind of where are they now conversations. Where is so-and-so? Have you heard from so-and-so? And so uh, he told me a little bit about his family, about his work. I kind of called him up on my family and, and work as a pastor and calling as a pastor. And then we pivoted a little bit where we began to talk about our spiritual pilgrimages post-college. And I asked him just to kind of describe to me what his uh, faith journey was like. And he used an interesting phrase. He said, David, I really consider myself now as a, a New Testament Christian. I was intrigued by his use of that adjective before the word Christian, a New Testament Christians. So I said, well, tell me, tell me a little bit. I mean, what is, it, what is distinctive about a New Testament Christian? He said, for years in my faith journey, I, I really could not figure out what to do with the Old Testament. I would read the Old Testament, and it just seemed so foreign. It seemed so contradictory to what I read in the New Testament. And so I realized eventually in my spiritual life that the Old Testament wasn't something I had to hold on to. So I left the Old Testament behind, and I consider myself a New Testament Christian. Then he sort of leaned over at the restaurant table, whispered almost, lest we be heard. And he asked me, David, do you really think that the Old Testament has any relevance for your life? Do you, do you really think that the Old Testament has any relevance for the church that you pastor? It's a very forthright question. And it was a question that you might have asked yourself. In fact, I, I would say that the majority of followers of Jesus have in some way asked and have answered that question. You read the Old Testament and you wonder, is there any relevance for what I'm reading in Leviticus for my life? If you're curious about Christianity, it very well may be that one of the reasons that you would say I'm not a follower of Christ is because you haven't quite figured out what to do with the Old Testament. Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 through 20 is not the only passage in the New Testament that addresses this important 
issue, but it is one of the leading passages. And, and I would say it's a very pivotal passage for our interpretation of the Sermon on the Mount. In, in many ways, scholars would say that Matthew 5, 17 through 20 is the interpretive lens by which the rest of the Sermon on the Mount is understood and read in light of. There will be a pivot in the Sermon on the Mount, and it's based upon our understanding of these very passages here in Matthew 5, 17 through 20. So we read, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I'm not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now notice in this passage here, there's much that we need to learn from what Jesus is saying. And I'm going to give two broad topics, two broad topics here. First is Jesus in the Old Testament, and the second is the Christian and the Old Testament. So as we look at Jesus' words here, we need to first understand Jesus and the Old Testament. Notice again in verse 17, he says, Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets, but I've come not to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Law and prophets was a shorthand in that ancient Near Eastern rabbinical, rabbinical tradition that summarized not just the first five books of the Old Testament, not just the major and the minor prophets, but all of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I didn't come to abolish it. Now notice that he has to address that because there's a rumor going around that he is speaking against of, of the Pharisees and scribes and others that had observed his ministry and wondered, is Jesus breaking the law of the Old Testament? You don't have to read too far along in the gospel accounts. You get to Mark chapter 2. Just the second chapter of Mark's gospel, and you see Jesus and the disciples walking through a grain field, and they pluck some grain, and there are those on the Sabbath that see them do that and say, he's breaking the law. He is a law breaker here. So Jesus says, you might have heard that I've come to abolish the law, but in fact, I've not come to abolish it, but I've come to fulfill it. In the original language of the New Testament, that word fulfill means to, to fill it full. Fill it to a place of overflowing here. Notice that Jesus isn't saying, leave the Old Testament behind. Actually, he is saying, I am here not to abolish it, but to fill it up, to be the completion of it. That the Old Testament finds its crescendo in me. It finds its fulfillment in me. So to that end, we notice the permanence of the Old Testament here in verse 18 of Mark's, of Matthew's gospel in the fifth chapter. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. You might be reading in the King James Version and you read, one, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law until it's all accomplished. What does that mean? Well, iota, it's a Greek word for yod, which is the smallest letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Not a dot is the reference to a tiny punctuation point in the Hebrew languages that in the Hebrew language that distinguishes Hebrew letters from one another. So what Jesus is saying is, is that there is going to be a day where earth as we know it, heaven as we know it, will pass away. There is going to be a restoration of this earth. 
There's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. And as God in creation made the Garden of Eden, there will be a day where the grips of sin will have no place in creation. There's, a, there's going to be a day where there, 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 there are no tornadic activity that occurs. There's no meteorological imbalances. There, there are no hurricanes that pass. The devastation that we've seen on television, and might be even close to us, in Lee County and in Beauregard, there, there's going to be a day where that is not going to be the case because creation is groaning and God will bring it to restoration. And what Jesus is saying, until I come back in my second coming, that the law will be fulfilled. So we don't just leave it behind. We have the law, we have the Old Testament, and ultimately it finds its fulfillment in me. It's quite the endorsement of the Old Testament, isn't it? I don't know how many of you are bowlers. Any bowlers in this room? I tell you this, I have three children. One thing that is to me a punishment for being a parent is when you have a five-year-old who says, Dad, can me and all of my five-year-old friends go to the bowling alley for a birthday party? And it's in that moment that there's gnashing of teeth. It is just... What are we getting into? And so what happens when a bunch of five-year-olds go to bowl? I mean, unless you have just this super athletic five-year-old son or daughter, what's going to happen is there are a lot of gutter balls. And, and they're the gutter balls that are the worst, which they don't have enough speed in rolling it that it's going to get it all the way on, on the sides of the pins so that it gets played back up and sent back to you. But rather, it gets stopped right in the middle of the gutter. And you've got a tip toe out there and there's a 16 year old who's working there who calls your name and says don't do that sir you know and <laughs> it's just all awkward and uncomfortable and so what do you do how do you salvage a five-year-old birthday party at the bowling alley well there is a holy spirit inspired invention called bumpers you know this god in his providential care was able to help the mr bowling man in his his uh, dreaming up of bowling alleys, that they were going to put bumpers out there. Now, this is the good thing about bumpers. Get that same five-year-old, and he or she bowls it sideways. This is going to bump from one side to the next side and to the next side, and it just keeps on rolling. And oftentimes, it can salvage the, the worst of, of a birthday party. Now, the church, under God's providence, has erected some bumpers and we're able to discern the bumpers by reading church history and understanding what have been some of the gutter balls theologically that have been rolled. And the church is able to say, this is too far to this side or too far to that side. One of, one of the earliest controversies in the church, you know, it has everything to do with what I'm preaching about this morning. One of the earliest controversies in the church is what do we do with the Old Testament? So if you go to modern-day Turkey, there was a preacher, church father, by the name of Marcion. He lived from 80 A.D. to 160 A.D. So we're getting into the first and the second century. Didn't, we're not even 50 years away from the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus, where you have someone come in on the scene, and he says two things. One, he says, I read the Old Testament, and it seems to be that the Old Testament God is not the God and Father of the Lord Jesus in the New Testament. There seems to be a contradiction, first thing that he says. Second thing he says is, is that the Old Testament shouldn't be in the Bible. So he creates a canon early second century, and guess what's not in the canon? The Old Testament. None of the Psalms are in it. 
Jeremiah, no. Genesis, no. Leviticus, no. It was this complete separation of the Old Testament. And guess what? There were some other theological bowlers that came around and said, you know something? This is a gutter ball. One was named Tertullian. Another was Irenaeus. And they read what uh, Marcion had taught, and they said, this is a heresy. And the church unanimously said, this is not a place that we need to go here. This is not an era that we want to repeat. And there was clarity early on in the role of the Old Testament for the Christian's life. Now, this is important for you to understand because if there was ever a time that you would think the church would say, let's scoot away from our Jewish roots, it would be in the second century where you had this group of Christians that are coming out of Jerusalem who are speaking of a Jewish Messiah who died upon a cross and was raised on the third day, and they want to take this message to a Greco-Roman pagan world. You can imagine the pressure to say, let's really minimize all the conversation about the Israelites and all of the Levitical laws, and let's just focus on the Gospels and the teachings of Jesus and the communication of the early church apostles as they're writing letters. You can see that they really would have been tempted to do this. They said, no, 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 no. Now, why would they have said no? Well, because you realize that they saw in this passage that there was a relevance of the Old Testament. And when Jesus says that he fulfills the Old Testament, this means that we don't discard the Bible of our Savior. Now, how does he fulfill it? Well, think about the doctrinal teaching of the Old Testament. You open up the Bible, you read in Genesis chapter 1, you read in Genesis chapter 2, you read in Genesis chapter 3, you see creation, fall, and the promise of the Savior given, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. Even there, when God is saying to the serpent, this is how you're going to be punished, there is going to be one who comes who is going to crush your head. You don't get three chapters into the Old Testament before God is making a promise that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. You come to Genesis chapter 12. He says, listen, Abram, you're going to be the father of a great nation. He says, I don't have children. He says, I will take care of that. You're going to be the father of a great nation, and through your nation, you're going to bless all the nations. Well, how in the world does God keep that promise? Well, he keeps it through Jesus Christ. Tim Keller, who many of you know is a New Testament, he's not a New Testament scholar, he's a pastor in Manhattan at a church called Redeemer Presbyterian Church. And and Keller talks real honestly uh, about one of the issues that he had early on in his Christian life. And he said that one of my issues was, what do I do with the Old Testament? Tells the story of going on a retreat with an Irish Old Testament scholar that died about two years ago named Alex Maltair. Alex Maltier was an Old Testament scholar, and in this question and answer time, Keller asked, how do we reconcile the Old Testament to the New Testament? And, and this Old Testament scholar says something very interestingly. He said, you know, if you were to ask the testimony of a wandering Israelite, 
that came out of slavery in Egypt. If you, if you were to ask them, what has God done for you? Do you know how they would have answered that question? Well, I have it on the screen here so that you can see it. We were in a foreign land in bondage under the sentence of death, but our mediator, the one who stands between us and God, came to us with a promise of deliverance. We trusted in the promises of God. We took shelter under the blood of the Lamb, and He led us out. Now, we're on the way to the promised land. We're not there yet. Of course we're not. But we have the law to guide us. And through blood sacrifice, we also have His presence in our midst. So He will stay with us until we get to our true country, our everlasting home. Do you see that the Old Testament isn't this other story that is completely contradictory to the story that you inhabit through God the Father's love by sending his Son and the Spirit that leads us and guides us, but rather the Old Testament story of deliverance is a template. It's a foreshadowing of your testimony, my testimony. We were in bondage, and God, through his grace, has set us free. We need to be guided not by a cloud by day and a fire by night, but by his presence in us through the power of the Holy Spirit. I love the way that Archbishop uh, Bishop Ryle, who in the Anglican Church, said that the Old Testament is the gospel in the bud, and the New Testament is the gospel in full flower. Now, you're here, and maybe you're convinced, okay, I, I see how Jesus fulfills the law. I can see how his ministry points back to the Old Testament and how he is the completion of it, but I'm still wondering, what do I do with all of the dietary laws? What do I do with all of the sacrificial laws? What do I do about all the holiness laws? Now understand that as a Christian, you read the Old Testament through the lens of Jesus Christ. So of course, none of you brought a goat this morning. None of you brought a, a spotless lamb. Why did you not bring that? Well, the Old Testament talks about that in great detail. In great detail about sin offerings and guilt offerings. And this is the truth of the Bible. That has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Praise God that he is the perfect sacrifice. So the sacrificial laws in the Old Testament, it points to the true and perfect sacrifice in Jesus Christ. So when we read back to those sacrificial laws, we can say with thanksgiving, praise God that it is finished and it has once and for all been paid for. Well, you say, well, what about all those dietary laws? What about all those laws about the temple and the tabernacle? It goes into all this great detail about how you're supposed to decorate the temple, how you're supposed to decorate the tabernacle. Well, the tabernacle was the presence of God with the people of God as they were traveling. The temple was the presence of God that was established there. Now, understand that we as Christians, we are the temple. That, that ultimately, we are the tabernacle. The Spirit of God lives in us. And so, no, we don't live under those dietary laws. We don't, we don't have to look back and say, what do we do if there's mildew in our house? What do we do? How can we go into the temple? How can we go into the tabernacle? We understand that Jesus Christ is perfectly holy. And so through his perfect work, so we are able to come into the presence of God the Father, not through our works, but through his work. And so the Spirit of God resides in us. So these are types the Old Testament we look back at and we see areas where they point to the fulfillment in Jesus. 
This is our hope. This is our foundation. Jesus in the Old Testament, the Christian in the Old Testament. Well, then you still might be asking here, well, what about verse 19 and verse 20 here? Because Jesus very clearly says, what does he say? He says, I tell you this, if your righteousness doesn't exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, well, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Well, how in the world can that be true? Do you understand that the, that the Pharisees were Olympic law-keeping athletes? I mean, these are gold medal winning law keepers. The Pharisees had established uh, 248 commandments that they were to keep from the Old Testament. They'd established 365 prohibitions, things that they were not supposed to do from the Old Testament. The Pharisees took the external keeping of the law very, very seriously. Now, if we're going to be honest here, there's none of us in this room that can compete with the Pharisees in their desire of keeping the law. And this is the good news. You don't have to. You don't have to, because the Bible has taught us in Galatians chapter 4 that Jesus was born under the law, and he has perfectly kept the law. And so what we understand is, how does our righteousness exceed that of the Pharisees? Well, it exceeds that of the Pharisees by trusting in the finished work of the gospel of Jesus Christ and having a heart transplant. And you know who talks about this? The Old Testament talks about this. Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33, he would say, This is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the law. I will put my law in their minds and I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. The way that your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees is by you trusting in the only one who has perfectly fulfilled the law, and that is Jesus Christ. You know, a good diagnostic question to have with a person that you love and you care for and you're in a relationship with and you wonder about their spiritual life, a good question to ask is, are you a Christian? I mean, not in a judgmental way, not in a pharisaical way, not in a looking down upon, but just as a question of curiosity. And it's always revealing of how a person would answer that question because it tells you their understanding of the gospel or their lack of understanding. If you say, are you a Christian? And they say, you know something, I'm, I'm really trying to be. I'm really trying to be. I'm really trying to clean up my life. You know something, David? I've started going to church more. You know something? I, I used to have a real bad habit where I was saying a lot of bad words. And now I'm getting to where I only say those bad words when I stub my toe or something like that. And, and they, they say, I, I'm giving more to the church now, and I'm trying to be more generous. I'm trying to be patient with my children. So when you ask me if I'm a Christian, I'm really trying to be. And then you'll understand. They don't quite understand. They don't understand that their righteousness will never save them. It's like you get a broom. And when you say, I'm trying to be a Christian, I'm trying to earn God's love, it's like you've taken a broom to the dirt of your soul and you just stir it up. You sweep it and you sweep it and you sweep it and you sweep it and you sweep it. And you sweep it and you sweep. So you sweep the jealousy, stir up the sin. You sweep the callousness and the dust stirs up. You need someone who cannot just be the broom to the sin of your soul. You need someone who can be the solvent. You need someone who can cleanse you. You need someone to do a heart transplant in your life. And there is one who desires to do that, and that is Jesus Christ. So are you a Christian? Don't look 
to yourself, but look to the one who desires to be your rescuer. And in light of that, now the Sermon on the Mount is going to pivot. Because if you are a believer and you've looked to Jesus, there is a call upon your life to pursue holiness. There is a call upon your life to follow him in obedience. But we don't do this to save ourselves. We don't do this to earn God's love. We have received the stamp of God's approval through his son. We've looked to Jesus for his finished work, and now we pursue holiness. We pursue obedience, not to save ourselves, but because we are saved. And this is where the temptation can be, where you become just like the Pharisees. You see, the Pharisees got all the external things right, but they were internally very far from God. I mean, they could put, they could dress up and they could keep all the external laws, but what we see again and again and again is their heart wasn't there. They had no relationship, although they kept all of the rules. They knew everything they needed to do, and they could, with great clarity, talk about keeping the laws. And that's why Jesus turns the Sermon on the Mount and he says, you want to talk about murder? You've heard that it was said, do not murder, but let me talk to you about the anger in your heart. Notice what Jesus is doing. He's moving from the external, and he's moving to the internal. You've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Let me talk to you about lust. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He's moving from the external, and he's moving into the internal. He is pointing out something that all of us in this room need to be reminded of. Is if we're followers of Christ, we can fall into the same pharisaical temptation of what occurred 2,000 years ago, that we spend a lot of time focused on the external, and we realize that there's not much of a deep devotion internally from the heart. And you can go through your life, and you can go to church, you can give to the church, you can serve in the church, you can be faithful externally by, while being very far from him at a heart level. Do you know that? I know that. I feel that. And I think you do too. Yesterday was baseball. All three of our boys are playing baseball right now, and uh, thankfully I've been able to coach the older boys, and now I get to be an assistant coach, great head coach. And so I'm an assistant coach, which means crowd control, crowd control. That's what that means. Seven-year-old boys. And so had a game yesterday. We're the Pirates this year. Got some fantastic Willie Stargell, 1970s, late 70s Pirates uniforms. We look really sharp. We look really good, kind of retro, which is good because we're 0-3 so far. So (laughs) it's always good when you're losing to look good when you're losing. Assistant coach gets to coach third base, coach coach first base. And so I was at third base. Also assistant coach at a seven-year-old baseball. Get to be out in left field. Get to be out in right field where your team is in the field. And so yesterday, first inning, one of our players came out there and said, Coach David, Coach David, how much longer do we have in the game? I said, it's the first inning. We've just started. We've got some time. Second inning. Runs out, runs out to a different position. Coach David, Coach David, is this game almost over? <laughs> Just a second inning, second inning. Perseverance, focus, focus, second inning. 
Third inning comes out there. Coach David, Coach David, this game's almost over, right? It was funny. He said, my feet are so hot. I said, son, it is, it's March. Just wait till May. And then you have something to complain about. Hold your complaints. This is the thing. You know, he had the hat. He had the bright yellow jersey. Got the gold belt. Got the pinstripe socks. Nice glove. He, he was playing the game, but his heart was far from the game. And boy, if we're, we're not careful, we know how to, to wear the Christian hat and to dress in the jersey of the home team. But our heart can be very far from him. So don't be confused thinking that Jesus is talking about things that have very little to do with your life and my life. This has everything to do with your life and my life. This has everything to do with our heart. You might have dressed the part today but where is your heart today? You might have dressed the part today, but where is your heart today? Let us pray. Gracious God, we see in your word a clear picture of the way that the Old Testament is seen only through your finished work, only through the accomplishment. So we thank you that none of us in this room can keep the law perfectly. We, we sin and we fall short. There's no denying that for all of us. Not only externally do we, but internally. We, we might be able to get through the letter of the law, but the very spirit of the law, we're far from. None of us are perfect. So thank you, God, for sending your son who perfectly obeyed, who was tempted in every way, but yet without sin. So today, for our sustenance and for our salvation and for our hope, we turn to you. As we journey and as we serve you and as we pursue holiness and obedience, we realize that we can dress up, we can play the part, we can look like we got it all together. But if we're to be honest, we are far from you at the heart level. So today, we turn to you, asking you to forgive us and to cleanse us. We turn to you for our hope. We turn to you, knowing you're the only source of comfort for all of our wandering hearts. So may today, we do a heart inspection. We look deep within 
to say, what are those internal covered up places that we need to do business with you? How we can go through the motions but be far from you at that heart level. Help us, Jesus, to feel your spirit leading us even today. It's in your name we pray, the powerful name of Jesus.